Hebrews 12, 18 through 24. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festival gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. This is God's word. Okay. Good morning to you all. I think maybe collectively we're like Cinderella that had to stay back from the ball and not go to the link retreat. But uh, we're here together and want to hear what the Lord has to say to us uh, here this morning. So we are continuing on uh, in our sermon series, Steady On. We're getting really close. Uh, we're getting close to the end of it. Chapter 12 is really the final a chapter where the author is giving out the, the logic of his argument that we've been exploring uh, the past number of months. So we'll do uh, the last little bit of 12 next week and finish out uh, our, our uh, kind of dig into the logic of Hebrews. And then we'll look at the closing chapter, which is the exhortations that are given uh, at the end. So we're going to get today one more appeal from the author about the superiority of the new covenant, which is really uh, what the argument has been throughout the letter. And next week, we're going to get one final warning passage about the dire consequences of abandoning the new covenant. And as we've noted throughout the series, the the pressing concern uh, of the author throughout the series, throughout Hebrews, was that these early Christians that he was writing to, who were facing persecution, would abandon their faith and retreat back to the safety of the Judaism that they had left behind. Now, we're not being persecuted for our faith, and we're not being tempted to abandon Christianity for Judaism, Judaism. but we do have our own temptations. We have our own trials. Each of us uniquely have our own experiences. And these trials cause us to wonder at times if sticking it out in faithfulness to Jesus is really in our best interest. If God is ultimately a source of rejoicing for you, then you're going to press through the trials and you're going to stick it out in faithfulness to Jesus. But if God is less a source of rejoicing for you and is more a source of fear or uneasiness, then you won't be as inclined to stick it out. Our text today invites us to think about who God is and who we are in relation to him. Is he ultimately, for us, a source of rejoicing and joy, or is he a source of fear and uncertainty? Now, we know what the right answer should be to that question. We all know how we should be interacting with God or what he should be to us, but I want us to really think about that question this morning. 
And toward that end, we're going to follow the logic of the author as he has introduced us from our scripture reading to two mountains. Both mountains are holy. Both mountains belong to God. But there's a key difference between these two mountains. One that makes the first holy mountain a source of anxiety and one that makes the second holy mountain a source of joy and rejoicing. And I want us to see the key difference between these two holy mountains. Now, for some of us, these mountains will be familiar. We knew as we listened to the scripture reading what, these, what the author was referring to, the mountains that he was referring to. Others of us may need a benefit or a ref- will benefit from a refresher. So we're going to explore these two mountains as been laid out for us here in Hebrews and then also look into other passages of scripture that describe these mountains. And then I want to invite each of you to consider the mountain upon which you are living. As we get to the application portion of the sermon, I'm going to direct some comments to my non-Christian friends, and then I'm going to direct some comments following that to my Christian brothers and sisters. I'll give you fair warning at the front end, if you're here this morning as one of my non-Christian friends, you're going to get the bulk of the application this morning. Next week, all the Christians are going to get the bulk of the application. So we're going to just kind of even it out. But uh, let's uh, dig into this text, looking at these two mountains. Let's get our head around and understand what these two mountains are. Verse 18 introduces us to this first mountain. The author describes this first mountain as a mountain that cannot be touched, a mountain blazing fire, darkness, gloom, a tempest, and the sound of trumpets. It doesn't sound like the happiest place on earth. The author doesn't name the mountain here in our passage, but his readers would have immediately understood, given their backdrop in Judaism, would have immediately understood that he was clearly describing Mount Sinai. Now, Mount Sinai, you may recall, if you are aware of the biblical history, was the mountain where the Lord had inaugurated the first covenant with the nation of Israel. This covenant, of course, came to be known later throughout history as the Old Covenant. But, of course, on the day that the Lord appeared on Mount Sinai, it wasn't an Old Covenant. It was a brand new covenant. Previously to this event, God had interacted with the Jewish prophets, or the Jewish patriarchs, rather, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But that was 400 years previously. God had not dwelt among his people during their 400 years of slavery in Egypt. And we have no record in the biblical history of any time that God sent prophets to his people while they lived that 400 years in Egypt. But now, 400 years since the last time that God had spoken to one of Abraham's descendants, Moses has been sent by God to lead the people out of their slavery in Egypt to take them to the promised land. So Moses, at the time we get to Sinai, which is what the author is referring to here in Hebrews, Moses has miraculously brought the people out of Egypt and he's brought them to the foot of Mount Sinai in the Arabian wilderness. And now, for the first time ever, and for the first time in 400 years that God has interacted with his people, God is coming 
to take up residence among them. He's coming to dwell in their midst. So imagine the significance of that moment. 400 years without God, and now he is moving in. So it was a moment of wonder, and it was a moment of terror. The events described for us in Exodus 19, you're welcome to turn there if you'd like. I'm going to read a few uh, verses out of this passage that kind of captures the significance of this moment. Really, it's just an expansion of what our passage in Hebrews is talking about. But listen along as I read these, uh, these passages, uh, verses out of Exodus 19, describing this moment when God, for the first time, comes to take up residency among his people. <clears throat> this is 19, verse 10, and then I'm going to kind of jump around a bit. The Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around saying, take care not to go up onto the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. Skipping down to verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud of the mountain, on the mountain, and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand on the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down and on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses up to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Skipping over to chapter 20, verse 18. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and they said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. So the author here in Hebrews in our passage this morning is referring back to this historic and significant moment in Israel's history. Every Jewish person would have known of Mount Sinai, would have known of the Lord coming down and revealing himself for the first time, taking up residency among the people permanently there on Mount Sinai. The author tells us in Hebrews that even Moses was afraid and trembled before God. It was an awesome privilege to have God come and dwell in their midst. And the psalmist would speak of this throughout. They would say, what other nation has God come and dwell among them? What other nation has the maker of heaven and earth as their God who has come and dwelt among them? So it was an awesome privilege but it was also, frankly, as we see in Exodus 19, as the author of Hebrews is uh, reminding us, it was also terrifying. It's this terrifying privilege of God's presence. 
And then the author, here in 12.22, turns a corner, though, away from Mount Sinai. That was the first mountain of God, the first holy mountain of God. And then he turns a corner to the second holy mountain of God. We've already read it, but listen to the contrast of what we've just read in chapter 19. You haven't come to this Mount Sinai. You've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. So he refers here, contrasting the old mountain of Sinai with this new mountain of Zion and Jerusalem. Mount Zion was the name of the mountain. Historically, you can find it in the Old Testament. It was the name of the mountain upon which Jerusalem sat. It was the site of the holy temple and the center of Jewish worship. So as the nation of Israel made their way into, from the Arabian desert, ultimately into the promised land, and then ultimately found their way to Jerusalem where they built the temple, it was built upon, or Jerusalem was built upon Mount Zion. It was the name of the, the holy mountain where the, where the, uh, the, the temple sat. But the author is not here in verse 22 referring to the old Mount Zion. Not looking back to the old earthly Jerusalem. The author is prophetically pointing forward to the new Mount Zion and the coming heavenly Jerusalem. We can find a vision of the first mountain by looking back into Israel's history. We find a vision of the second mountain by looking forward into the redemptive plan of God. And we can find this vision of this Mount Zion, this second mountain in the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation records a lot of things that happen at the end of history, but when we get to the climax of history, we see the inauguration of this new mountain. So if you go to Revelation 21, you can see little glimpses of this new Mount Zion that the author is saying God's children are a part of. Revelation 21.10, I'm I'm again, I'm going to read a few bits and pieces out of the end of Revelation. The Apostle John is given a vision of this new Mount Zion. And carried away in the spirit, verse 10, he was carried away to a, I was carried away to a great high mountain. And the Lord showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and the gates 12 angels, and on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. There's a lot here that describes the temple, but I'm going to skip down to chapter 22, looking at verses 1 through 5. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, still here within the context of this city on the high mountain of Zion, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, and also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations." No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. The author is telling them in Hebrews chapter 12, our primary passage this morning, is telling them that 
They've already come to this future Mount Zion. In the present time, through the work of Jesus, they have been introduced into the roles, as it were, of this heavenly city. <clears throat> By setting these two mountains in contrast to each other, the author is reaffirming the, the, the simple point that he has been making all throughout for 12 chapters. The new is better than the old. The second is better than the first. Jesus is the better mediator than Moses. The author is saying to his readers, essentially, don't go back to the smoke and the terror of Moses' covenant. It was glorious. Not trying to take away the glory of it. It was glorious, but it was only a dark foreshadowing of the true and eternal second covenant, which is given to us by Jesus and which is full of endless light and glorious color. In other words, the author's point here in this passage by contrasting these two mountains is put your hope in the new Mount Zion rather than the old Mount Sinai. Okay, here's where I want us to reflect a little bit, though. Why, why is Mount Zion better than Mount Sinai? At these two mountains... Why is one, the second, better than the first? Both mountains belong to the Lord. They're both the mount of God. Both mountains are holy. What's interesting here as well is both mountains even have trumpets and angels. You can find the angels referenced on the first mountain back uh, in Hebrews chapter 1, or 2 rather. So we've got two mountains that are both God's holy mountain. God is present at both of them with trumpets and angels. These two mountains. Why was Mount Sinai all doom and gloom and raging tempest? And Mount Zion all feasting and rejoicing? Or now to put it a bit more personally, getting to the way that we started our sermon, why do some of us relate to God like we're meeting him on Mount Sinai, while others of us relate to God like we're meeting him on Mount Zion. Look back at our text here. A holy God shows up on both mountains with angels and trumpets, and then the people come to meet him. And here's the key that I want you to see in this text. When you take a holy God and you mix him together with sinful people, you get Mount Sinai. When you take a holy God and you mix him together with holy people, you get Mount Zion. The primary difference between these two mountains is not their location, but the condition of the people who come to the mountain. At Mount Sinai, the people had not yet been redeemed and healed from their sin. This is the point the author is making really all throughout uh, Hebrews. The people were still as sinful as they had been during their slavery in Egypt. Indeed, did you catch it? They were not even allowed on Mount Zion, only to the foot of it. And even that was too much for them. They got to the foot of it. They trembled with fear, and they said to Moses, you go talk to him. We don't want to, we don't want to talk to him. You talk to him and then tell us what he says, because this is very scary for us. But on Mount Zion, 
There dwells a holy people who have been cleansed and healed and made holy by Jesus. Mount Zion is the fulfillment of everything Mount Sinai pointed towards. So Mount Sinai was God's way of saying to humanity broadly, stay back. You need to be saved from your sin. Mount Zion is God's way of saying to his children, come to me. I have saved you from your sin. We have the wrong idea if we think God was grumpy on Sinai, but then after a couple thousand years of human history, just kind of grew out of his grumpiness and was in a better mood on Zion. God doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever, the scripture tells us. He was the same holy God on Mount Sinai that he is on Mount Zion. The primary difference between the mountains is not, listen to this, it is not God's disposition. It is our condition. The more unlike him we are, the more he becomes an object of terror. The more like him we are, the more he is a source of rejoicing. So a while back, uh, a number of years ago, I was driving to, uh, to work, and uh, this was when I was living up in the Rolling Meadows area, and we have a long street, and I had just a short distance to go to the church I was working at previously, and it kind of works its way through a residential neighborhood, and then the last like block and a half is all businesses. And so it was a Saturday morning, and uh, I dutifully obeyed the speed limit through the residential portion of my neighborhood. But when I got to the businesses, I was in a bit of a hurry, and I sped up to get to the end of the street. And sure enough, right there was a police officer. And as I went past the police officer, I had a thought like, ooh, ooh, that might be a problem. And, and it, in fact, it was. And so um, <laughs> I saw him pull out. And then you hope, well, maybe he just happened to get a call right at that moment. But no, he pulled behind me, and then the lights went on. And I don't know if you've been pulled over recently or ever. Some of you maybe have never been pulled over. Uh, but when the lights go on behind you, you get that kind of feeling in your stomach, like, ooh, you know, shoot. Like, it gives you anxiety, an element of fear. You can sense judgment coming, right? Sure enough, I got pulled over. I've been speeding. He gave me a ticket. Now, years prior to that, I had been driving in Wisconsin, coming home from a, a weekend trip, uh, Green Lake, in fact, although it was uh, uh, years when I was still in college, coming home from Green Lake and uh, driving at night in the rain and was uh, somewhere on the middle of, of 90, I suppose it was, in Wisconsin, and a U-Haul truck uh, carrying a, a car behind it didn't see me and pulled over into my lane, not seeing me. I, I slammed on the brakes in an effort to not get run off of the road. My car spun out in the rain, and I slammed into the sidewall of a, of a bridge barrier, bounced off of that, and ended up in the median. And, and, I, and we were in, you know, I was in Wisconsin. We were in Wisconsin, and, I, I was, and the, the tire had blown out, and and I didn't really know exactly where I was. I knew we were a long way from home. It was raining. And uh, I was like, oh, this is a disaster. Like, what, what do I do from here? And then I saw the flashing lights. I would say in my rearview mirror, but actually I had spun around. It was facing oncoming traffic. So in my front, I saw the flashing lights. 
and I was relieved. I was so relieved to see the flashing lights of the police officer. And isn't it interesting that it was the exact same flashing lights, right? The same flashing lights in my rearview mirror, as it were. But the difference between those circumstances is not the flashing lights. It's not the reason that the flashing lights in the first story gave me fear and the flashing lights in the second story gave me relief. It's not because the flashing lights were different. It's because I was different. Because I was in need of the resources that the flashing light would bring in the second story. The flashing lights can either be lights of condemnation or they can be lights of deliverance. And whether we experience happiness or terror in God's presence ultimately depends upon what kind of people we are. The last verse of Hebrews 12 tells us, as we'll get to next week, tells us that God is a consuming fire. Now, that's a problem if you're made of something combustible. Sin makes us combustible. It makes us unholy. That's what sin is. That's what unholiness is. Right? It's not just, I'm just this intact human being, the same as everybody else. I've just got this rap sheet that's over here. And the difference between me and another person is just whose rap sheet is longer. Right? But, if I'm, but sin isn't out here on my rap sheet. Sin actually is woven all throughout me. Right? It's what makes us combustible. It makes us unholy. But Jesus cleanses us from the dross and the sin that is within us and makes us pure. Mount Zion is a mount of rejoicing because Jesus, as the great high priest of the new Jerusalem, cleanses and ultimately perfects all who come to his mountain. On Mount Zion, we are thoroughly and fully forgiven for every misdeed. And the good news, the really good news, is Jesus doesn't just clean up the rap sheet. He actually transforms us and makes us holy, just as God himself is holy. Perhaps not all at once, but surely over time, and then finally and ultimately on the last day of resurrection. Because of Jesus, the holy God is no longer a source of fear, but a source of rejoicing. The flashing light in our rearview mirror is no longer an object of terror and judgment as it was on Sinai, but of glory and deliverance. I want to take this insight of these two mountains and why one is doom and gloom and one is rejoicing. I want to apply it to our lives here thinking specifically now for those of you who are not yet Christians. I've got some, some questions and some things for you to consider. So for my not yet Christian friends, here's some questions. Who is God to you? Is he perhaps a source of fear, a source of unease? Is he an uncomfortable prick of your conscience that you try to suppress? I understand that. I get that. The unveiled glory of God is an awesome thing. It's a truly terrifying thing. But if your conscience is only pricked by his presence, then I dare say you probably have not yet encountered him. Perhaps you've only encountered the idea of him. 
regardless of whether you choose it or not, thrust into his presence, you will someday be. We often speak of eternal judgment, the final judgment, as separation from God for sinners. But as best as I can tell from Scripture and as many of the saints have taught, eternal judgment is not being separated from God, but rather is being eternally unable to escape his holy and awesome presence. God, for now, stays his hand. He holds his kingdom in reserve. He has not yet unveiled the fullness of his glory upon the world. He remains partially hidden and apart from his creation. But he will not forever stay his hand. He holds his, he, he will not forever stay his hand. His love will compel him to step back into the world that he has made and set everything to right. Someday his just kingdom will come, as Jesus taught us to pray. And his righteous glory, says the prophet Isaiah, will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And then, friend, where will you go to flee from his holy presence? Where will you hide yourself from his glory? To go back to Revelation, which records the vision of redemption that we all have already read, records prior to that this vision of God's coming judgment. As God draws closer and closer to the earth, he brings with him the same terror that he brought to the people of Israel on Sinai, but this time on a global apocalyptic scale. Listen to what John saw prophetically of as God draws near to earth. He writes this in Revelation 6, 13 through 17. The stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, listen to this now, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? They wanted to flee from the coming presence of God. His glory as it was being unveiled upon the world was unmaking it and unmaking them. The author tells us of Hebrews in Hebrews 4.13 that no creature is hidden from his sight. All are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. His infinite glory will one day soak into his creation like water into a sponge, and no place will remain dry or hidden or untouched. Indeed, in the last day, the divine glory, listen to this, the divine glory that will be the light of God's love to the saints will be the same glory that is the terror of God's wrath to the sinner. God does not give one thing to his saints and another thing to sinners. He gives all creation just one thing, himself. 
And who we are on that day will determine whether the divine presence of God becomes for us heaven or it becomes for us hell. So to my non-Christian friends, I would say you are right in one sense to draw back from God. He is holy and you are not. But he loves you and he has made provision for you to approach him. He has sent his only and well-beloved son, Jesus Christ, to be your great high priest. Jesus, through his death and his resurrection and his divine intercession, will make you holy and fit to be in God's presence today and on that great day, not only now, but ultimately and eternally. The divine presence is a source of anxiety and fear for you. That's, in many ways, the right place to begin. It's the right place to start. But don't stay there. Throw yourself upon the redeeming mercy of Jesus. The trumpets of terror will become for you trumpets of rejoicing. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the day to accept the free offer of grace. It costs nothing except your sinfulness because Jesus will come and he will remake you and he will make you new. All right, for my Christian brothers and sisters, I would ask you to reflect on these ideas. Then. I think this is mostly what the author is stressing for us doesn't want us to go back to Sinai. Don't go back to Sinai, I would say to you. You have been brought by God's grace to Mount Zion. And I would exhort you and I would encourage you to live there and enjoy the freedom that is yours in Jesus. The great high priest of Mount Zion wipes away your mistakes and is steadily but surely making you the right kind of person who can live truly and rightfully with the assembly of the firstborn and the righteous spirits made perfect. You can enter into that company of faith that we read about in Hebrews chapter 11, perfected in the cloud of witnesses. If Mount Sinai, the place of the God-inaugurated first covenant under Moses could not provide true forgiveness and freedom, then nothing else can. If that couldn't do it, and it couldn't, then nothing else can. To step away from Mount Zion and to seek your freedom and joy in any other mountain, we won't go back to Mount Sinai, probably, right? But we go back to other mountains of our own creation or other mountains of the world, whether the mountain of human achievement the mountain of familial satisfaction, the mountain of business success, the mountain of pleasing others, the mountain of pleasing yourself, the mountain of financial security, all these mountains that the world offers us to choose from, that we can go to for salvation, to deliver us from our sin and our guilty conscience and to give us freedom. There is no mountain like Mount Zion. No earthly mountain can give you what is offered to you by Jesus on the top of Mount Zion. Jesus has made and is making you new. 
Live into that reality. Don't give up what you have in search of something better. There is nothing better. So no matter how difficult it can be, as it were, journeying towards Mount Zion, while in one sense spiritually living there already, as hard as it can be to keep making our way to Mount Zion, the provisions and the blessings of the new covenant are eternal and true, and they outweigh any price we must have to pay to get there. So I would encourage you this morning in the light of these two mountains and in light, Christian brother and sister, of your present living on Mount Zion to live humbly and gratefully into the joy of your forgiveness and your new life on Mount Zion. Let's pray. Father, <clears throat> uh, we all started off at Mount Sinai either ignorant of you or when you did show up, we were afraid because we just were not fit to be in your presence. But you have, through Jesus, your only son, you have brought us graciously into your presence. We see now through the eyes of Jesus that these two mountains really, in the end, they're the same mountain. The difference is not the mountain, the difference is us. And God, we thank you that you have given us Jesus to make us new and true, to live rightfully on this mountain with joy. Lord, I pray for those that have a hard time living into that joy. I pray that you would give them the freedom to do so. I pray also, Lord, for those that are here this morning that still are dwelling on Mount Sinai, not yet Christians, and are contemplating their relationship with you. And I pray that you would cause them to see the graciousness that is offered to them in Jesus and that they would lay hold of that and find you to be a God of rejoicing. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.